a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move. Down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 146 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, the owner of Game Time Media and freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country and beyond. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice and share the podcast on your favorite social media outlet. I'm recording today from the almost world-famous Say the Damn Score studio in the basement of my townhome in Burnsville, Minnesota. And yesterday was a really sad day in the sportscasting industry because yesterday was the day that Vin Scully, the Longtime voice of the Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers, as well as you know one of the great network broadcasters as well, passed away at the age of 94. And I can't pretend to be one of the people who grew up listening to his broadcasts on the transistor radio under the pillow. Uh, the reality is I grew up in Nebraska where nobody carried Dodgers broadcasts and it was too far away to pick up any grainy AM signals. And I never had satellite radio or didn't have a chance to discover the TuneIn app in time to really listen to him before he had retired. But studying the craft, you can't do it without going back and listening to old Vin Scully broadcasts. Going back and listening to some of his great calls, it's easy to see why he was considered the best. Whether it was building the perfect crescendo in his call of the perfect game pitched by Sandy Koufax. His remarkable ability to shut up and lay out and let the roar of the crowd take over during Hank Aaron's record-setting home run. Or just his ability as a storyteller, which is beyond comparison from anyone else out there right now, to have listeners hanging on his every word, uh, whether the subject is the history of beards, or Madison Bumgarner killing a rattlesnake and saving a rabbit at the same time uh, while roping cattle. Nobody could tell stories like he could. I know I'm not breaking any news by saying that. The cliche story that everybody tells is that he's the only broadcaster who the game itself seemed to wait for his stories to get done. That Obviously isn't true, but his ability to weave everything in and understand the timing and make everything fit. It's just better than anybody else has ever done it and probably ever will do it again. He quite simply was the best play-by-play announcer to ever put on a headset or get behind the mic. And I am honestly just not capable of doing justice to any kind of a tribute. So what I did is I went back to find three old clips from this podcast. Uh, One from Joe Davis, who uh, had to replace Vin Scully. Uh, One from Tom Bowman, his former producer currently at Learfield Sports. And one from Bob Costas. And I am going to play those for you. And the first, as I mentioned, is from Joe Davis, who talks about the advice that Vin Scully gave him in following in his footsteps. There are a couple of things that he's told me, and, and yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like we're best friends either. He, you know, he uh, had an incredibly long career, and I think when it's time to retire, it was time to retire and step away and be with his wife Sandy, and totally understand that. But he's not gone without passing a few things on to me, and one of those, the the biggest one was to be myself, and that's something that Red Barber told him when he stepped into the booth in 1950. Uh, it seems simple, but it's not. You know, when we take these jobs, we try to be, or the tendency at least, is to try and be what we think we should be in the position. 
And so the most important thing, because especially in baseball, you're going to get exposed if you're not, but you just have to let yourself be yourself. And it seems like simple advice, but it was great advice from Ben. And then the other thing that I really have taken with me from our conversations is, you know, he's known for being at his best in the biggest moments. And I was curious what his philosophy was. And he, he kind of, kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier, the, the whole quarterback connection of trying to stay calm and lower your heart rate and not get too excited when the moment does. Uh, he compared it to, he said, look, if, if your house is burning down and all heck breaks loose, you are probably not going to get yourself and your cat and all your belongings and all your family out of the house. If you're freaking out, you've got to be the calmest person in the room. And it's kind of the same way when the big moment happens and that place is going crazy and there's a big swing and a long drive. If you let your heartbeat get going too fast and your eyes too wide, you're probably not going to do that moment justice. So just the idea of the bigger, the moment, the, the calmer you have to make yourself um, getting that advice from the greatest ever to accomplish that and, and embrace that whole philosophy. Uh, it's advice. that's really special to me. And I, you know, coming from the, the greatest ever to embrace that, you know, that philosophy of being calm in the big moments. And I find myself thinking about it often. Our next clip is from Tom Bowman, currently of Learfield sports, but but formerly a producer for the Dodgers, and he talks about what Vin Scully uh, was like away from baseball. When you travel with these guys, you, you really do get to see what kind of people they truly are. And so traveling with Vin was the greatest storyteller ever. And so the same type of stories that you get on the air, they were even better off the air. You're, you're just hanging out at a club with your friends. I mean, I, mean, I went to to man camp with these guys. I mean, we all hung out in South in Central Florida, in Dodger Town, in Vero Beach, in this legendary place where just unbelievable players had been. I mean, Jackie Robinson had been there. It's unbelievable. And and then here comes Vin, and he's in his his cool uh, Gucci white loafers and his Sansibelt pants and a and a sports shirt. They called it. The funny thing is, is that Vin's wardrobe for spring training has gone in and out of style probably 30 times (laughs) you know i mean you go look at anybody walking all these hipsters walking down the street they got these cool gucci loafers ben bought those when they were new way back when i mean the man is is unbelievable what people i don't think realize is that you know baseball is his passion but his culture is what he loves i mean he loves france he loves uh, Broadway show tunes. I, I believe, unless it's changed in the last couple of years, that uh, his driver, uh, when he's coming into the ballpark, he's listening to Broadway show tunes. He's not listening to baseball. He's not listening to somebody else. Vin knows his job when he gets to the ballpark, and he preps accordingly, but he's not always taking it home. And I, I do think that that's part of it. I, For me especially, I, there are times when people say, oh, you you know, you must watch a lot of NFL and all these other things. I'm like, no, I'm in the college world every Saturday for football, especially. On Sundays, I don't watch the NFL. I watch DIY. I watch, you know, the Food Channel because I've just had so much of it. You know, if you work at Baskin-Robbins, you probably don't always eat ice cream when you go home. Um, and I'm that way, and I think Vinny's probably that way as well. So, you know, there's all these cool things, but, you know, it's a fraternity of ours, and we kind of keep that special. And, you know, if someone gets the privilege to be in that, they should really enjoy it for as long as they can because um, it's an unbelievable club to be part of. The last clip I'm going to play is from my conversation with Bob Costas, and he goes into great detail into why we will never see another broadcaster make the same impact on fans across the country that Vin Scully was able to make. Well, let's use Vin Scully as an example. You start out, and this is the most important part of it, you start out with a singular and unique talent. But let's say that same talent came along today, or even someone who was 75% as good. The same talent could not achieve the same level of esteem and accomplishment, and someone who was 75% as good could not even be. 75% as good because the circumstances would not allow. Some of the circumstances are what I just described.
of the kind of overwhelming production of modern television, which doesn't sideline the announcer or make them unimportant, but it alters the announcer. The announcer is not as primary as he used to be. But then there's also this. If Vin Scully, and I say this with respect, if Vin Scully had been the voice of the Cincinnati Reds, now the Cincinnati Reds' longtime voice, Marty Brenneman, is in the Hall of Fame, and rightly should be. But if Vin had been the voice of the Cincinnati Reds, no matter how great he was, it wouldn't have had the same impact, because the team he is associated with is one of the most historic teams in baseball history. He's associated with Jackie Robinson's Dodgers, who went to the World Series or contended for it almost every year from the time he joined that team. And he was a protege of Red Barber. And then when the team moves west, he introduces an entire fan base to baseball. They grow up listening to him. And almost no games were on television. So they're listening to him on the radio. People are bringing radios first to the Coliseum and then to Dodger Stadium to listen to Vin while they're watching the games. And at that time, baseball was still the undisputed national pastime. When he goes to network television in the 80s and teams with Joe Garagiola on NBC, World Series games were still routinely getting ratings in the high 20s and in the mid-30s even if you got to the sixth or seventh game. So cumulatively, a seven-game World Series got more viewers than a Super Bowl would get. And he puts his stamp brilliantly on big moments so that he has a national profile. Then he goes back to the Dodgers, and he's developed a relationship not just with a generation of fans, but with multiple generations of fans. A guy could be 60 years old and literally say, I've been listening to Vin Scully since I was a little kid. That's what baseball sounds like to him. So he gets the combination, not only of Scully's great skill, which would be noteworthy if you first encountered him doing the Toledo Mud Hens, but of a warmth and an affection and a personal connection that builds up over time in a way that only a local announcer can match. A network announcer, no matter how skillful, no matter how accomplished, cannot have the same relationship with the audience that a local announcer does. So the combination of his great skill, his distinctive style, the longevity, doing it for some 67 years, doing it on both coasts in big cities, New York and Los Angeles, having that kind of following, having enough of a network presence at one time so the whole nation knew him, and then you get to the end of his career, and it's a situation where if people really want it, they can get the baseball package. So a lot of people from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon, are able to listen to Vin call an otherwise not-so-important game between the Dodgers and Padres on some summer night in July, and they're listening to it for the pure pleasure of listening to Vin, and he's able to call upon, not just by knowledge, but by personal memory, he's able to call upon a story about Branch Rickey, even as he talks about the modern-day front office of the Dodgers. That's a combination of circumstances that no announcer today, no matter how skilled and no matter how willing to work hard, no announcer could possibly match that. There's too much to compete with it. There's too many highlight shows. There's too many things that divert our attention. There's too much noise and clutter. When Vin Scully said on every broadcast from the 1950s right up until a couple of years ago when he stepped aside, pull up a chair, that conjures up a whole different notion and a whole different time. But yeah, for a couple hours, which it was back in the 50s and 60s, maybe for three hours by the time Vin's career ended, I'm just going to pull up a chair. I'm just going to relax. I'm going to take in a ball game, and Vin Scully's going to help me enjoy it. If Vin Scully was 25 years old today, he'd still be great, and he'd wind up in the Hall of Fame, but it couldn't have the same impact. My condolences and heartfelt sympathies go out to the family and friends and fans of the greatest broadcaster to ever do it, Vin Scully. After all that, we still have an interview to get to, and it's really not fair for Sam Niederman, who is our guest this week, and a really good one at that. But Sam Niederman is our guest. 
He's an up-and-coming broadcaster. He's only 24 years old, but he's already the voice of NCAA Division I Stony Brook. And last fall made his network national radio debut, uh, calling college football for Westwood One. Uh, He's a remarkable talent and a very interesting person to talk to. So on that note, Sam Niederman, welcome to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thanks, Logan. Really appreciate you having me. I'm excited. So let's just start at your 24, right? You got it. Okay. So very early in your career, and you've been doing, you've been broadcasting for seven years. So you obviously had to have started while you were still in school, which means that you probably had a very good idea of what you wanted to do early on, which is a huge advantage if you're able to have that. Uh, What led to you deciding to go to the University of Indiana, which certainly has some broadcasting history? You know, Joe Buck was there for a year. Um, There's a few other that I'm probably losing in my COVID fog. But uh, what was the decision to go there instead of going east to Syracuse or Fordham or something like that? Yeah, well, I actually kind of took a roundabout path to Indiana because I started my career at the University of Alabama. So I went down south before I went home, which was really interesting. I was kind of fascinated with SEC country throughout my high school years, and I had an opportunity to go out of state. My family was supportive and got behind it, and so I went down to Bama for the first two years of my four years of school, and I eventually transferred to Indiana to finish my career. So I kind of always like to joke around and say that I jumped in the transfer portal before it was cool, (laughs) you know. And, um, you know, here we are a couple years later, I've got my degree here in front of me in my room from IU and I couldn't be prouder. It was probably the best decision I've ever made to go back home, to go to IU. So it just made sense. I took a little bit of a risk and got some great experiences at Alabama. I got to work in small town, local radio in Selma, civil rights landmark. I got to work with Eli Gold in Birmingham doing intermissions for the Birmingham Bulls, which is the hockey team down there. So that was really cool. And then when it came time to come back home, it was just the perfect experience. Two years of student radio, Big Ten Network Student U, uh, traveling with the Indiana University softball team, which was a lot of fun. And just the infrastructure and resources that IU has, you'd be hard-pressed to find a a better spot for sports broadcasting. So it was. uh, I'm glad that I kind of got the hybrid. I got a, a, a look into SEC country. I loved Alabama. It ended up not being the right fit personally, and I ended up going home, and it, it couldn't have worked out any better. So Big Ten grad, but definitely still have a soft spot for the SEC, and uh, definitely think it's the premier place in, in college athletics, especially when it comes to football. So, Did you get experience broadcasting in high school, or was your first experience when you got to college? Yes. So I started in high school. I actually started on the speech team, which was kind of nerdy to me at the time. I'll never forget. I was a freshman in high school and my English teacher, Mr. Kennedy, had us do some sort of speaking exercise. And when he gave back the grades for, it was, I think it was a little presentation. So we all did a little presentation and he handed out the grades after we all finished up. And he said, if you have ST written at the top of your paper, that means speech team. I want you to come to the call out meeting and see if you'd be interested. So I had an ST at the top of my paper. I joined the speech team. I did that for four years throughout high school. And my event in speech was broadcasting or as an Indiana speech, which is kind of different from some of the other speech federations across the country. The slang term was radio because the event was as if you're a radio broadcaster in a news sense and, you know, kind of like a radio broadcast journalist, newscaster, whatever you want to call it. So I did four years of speech, and then I started a sports network at my high school with some friends my last two years there. Um, had some great teachers who helped us out with that. They gave their time outside of you know their normal working hours uh, when we had games. And so we did close to, I don't know how many events by the end of it, but my senior year was jam-packed with football, basketball, baseball, soccer, all the sports that we had. And it was kind of in that time when I'm sure you're familiar with it, Logan, where we were doing, you know, like streaming, high school streaming was just on the come up. Like we started out on uh, High School Cube, I think was the name (laughs) of the the platform. 
if you're familiar, and, and we had Wirecast on a laptop, and it was really ragtag, but it was a lot of fun. Like, I'll just never forget my senior year football season. I got to do all the football games, and me and, and the rest of my buddies, we'd all kind of go around in my little Toyota Highlander and just sort of pack it up with all the gear and drive to whatever school we were playing that night and set it up and, you know, We'd be threatened if there wasn't Ethernet, but we'd find a way to make it happen, as you know, all of us know, kind of when you go through that equipment setup. So it was a lot of fun. So, yes, got, got to broadcast in high school and um, got to see some really cool games. Um, you know, Indiana is great for basketball, so seeing Indiana high school basketball was a lot of fun. Got to do some fun games there, and, and, and football is always – football is probably my favorite, so that was – that was a lot of fun to do in 2015, which was feels like forever ago now. What were some of the lessons you learned from speech team that were applicable that you still use now? That's a good question. I don't think I've actually ever had that asked before. That's why I get paid the big bucks here. On <laughs> that's podcast. right. That's why we're on say the damn score. That's what. That's how we roll. Um, I, I'd say being a performer was the number one lesson that I took away from speech. So we, I, speech got me out of my comfort zone, right? There was sort of like the, it was a hodgepodge of kids, you know, there was sort of the sports fan kids, like me and my friends who were the broadcasting dudes, but then we had the theater kids and the music kids and we all got along. It was a lot of fun. And I think just seeing how to have a stage presence uh, if you want to call it, a, you know, in baseball, call it mound presence for a pitcher. I think we could call it mic presence as a broadcaster, right? Everybody's got to have a little mic presence. You got to have some command when you're on the mic, whether it's television or radio. And I think that's the bis- biggest thing that I took away was being a performer and realizing that this is entertainment. It, it's not, you know, that that's not first and foremost what it is, right? But I think everybody who kind of embarks on broadcast or play-by-play, here's inform and entertain, right? The, the top two priorities, depending on what school you went to or, or who you've talked to. And um, I think that entertainment component is big. You need to have some sort of skill level. You need to have kind of a little bit of a flair and, and, and a style. And I think that's sort of with speech. Speech kind of taught me the basics too. So whether it was diction or just learning to read out loud, finding a voice, finding a sound. Yeah, I'd probably cringe if I had to go back and listen to myself in high school just because you're so young. But um, I think that's kind of what speech ended up doing for me was sort of getting those first baby steps. And I, I think, you know, I don't know if you've read it, Logan, but Art of Sports Casting by John Hedrick, which I think is a, a classic, right? I see you're going to pull it out of probably your bookshelf right now. Like that's a Bible of play-by-play and of sports casting. There it is. And I think one of the first, one of the kind of random tips in there is take theater classes or take speech classes. And it couldn't be more true because there are a lot of lessons to be learned um, in that setting, in that arena. I know your career is still pretty short at this point, but you've really jammed a lot into it. And you Go back to your year, or was it two years, in Alabama where you're working for the Birmingham Bulls uh, with Eli Gold. What did you learn from that experience? He's one of, this is going to be a red-hot take that a lot of people are not going to like, but I don't. I think a lot of SEC legendary broadcasters are overrated. Oh, my. And I then, disagree. But he is not one of them. I think he is phenomenal. I guess, what did you learn f- from that experience? Okay, well, first off, I di- I disagree. Okay, let's team. go into this. This will be fun. Yeah. <laughs> so did you watch the uh, the ESPN uh, thing with all the voices with – More than Georgia, a voice. What's yeah. the Georgia guy's name? Larry Munson yeah, I cannot or Scott Howard? Dan Larry Munson. It's, uh, it's wow. So you don't like the Homer then you don't like the hometown. And then I also thought they, a lot of the big plays that they had where they're playing them back and like, Oh, this call is great. And they're like, there's no subscription. There's no description. They're just saying 50, 40, 30, 20, 10 touchdown. (laughs) And I'm like, that's really not very good. There's no, okay. I, I, there's no breaking away down the sideline to the 20 spins back to the middle. You know, there's the description level was not there. At the level you want a little that, more detail, a little more technique. Yeah, I that I I can see what you're saying, but I think that's the beauty of what we do. 
is that there's no one right way to do it. You can approach, so Herschel Walker busting out an 80-yard touchdown run, there's no right way to approach it. And I I think that's the beauty. You could have the hometown call from Larry Munson. You could have, let's say, 30 years later, another generation, Scott Howard, calling, let's say, DeAndre Swift. You know, George's running back backfield wasn't that prolific this past year. It was more by committee. But DeAndre Swift or, or Nick Chubb. How about Nick Chubb, you know, busting 75 yards at Neyland Stadium to do the same type of thing against Tennessee? I think it's it's funny how you could do that. And I think it's a different time of broadcast, right? It's simple. It doesn't have some of that technical detail, which I think you could purchase. But at the same time, it's like a spectrum. So you could purchase the technique or you could purchase the power. And Munson's all power, right? The hobnail boot, right? Uh, the, the hometown enthusiasm, something that resonated with his fan base. And so I think that... There's no one way to do it. I, I'd really, when I was watching those calls back, and I know the documentary that you're talking about, the More Than a Voice, which I watched last fall, which was, I thought it was terrific. You know, kind of the father of SEC radio voices is John Ward at Tennessee, the late John Ward. And he kind of laid that foundation. You have guys like Munson, you have guys like Eli who are still doing it today. And now there's this new generation, right? Sean Kelly just got hired at Florida to replace Mick Huber. Legendary. I mean, Mick will go down as one of the most iconic voices in the SEC. But that region of the country and that style of broadcast is definitely the hometown genre where you get a little more of a homer call. You get something that those fans will attach to. There's like the New York school of broadcasting, right? It's that network level broadcasting. It's... McDonough and Tarico and Eagle and Costa, you know, I know I just ran off a bunch of Syracuse guys, but uh, Mike Brain for a Fordham example, right? There's that New York school. Um, and then I think there's just like Midwestern school. I know I'm going on a, a ramble here and I, you and me kind of fall into that, right? I think we have similar hometown voices, whether I like for Minnesota, for example, right? I love Mike Grimm. Like, I think Mike Grimm is dynamite for the University of Minnesota. And or, or Paul Allen. I, I love Paul Allen uh, for the Vikings. And again, some of that hometown genre. I, I think that there's you, small town radio stations, whether it's in Richmond, Indiana or, you know, Des Moines, Iowa. There's there's sort of a, a flavor of that segment of the country, that heartland middle of America. I'm, I can't say I'm too familiar with the West Coast. Um, you know, maybe Hollywood's another kind of segment of the country. But I think there's just – it's funny because there's no one right way to do it. Um, I love that more than a voice documentary, and I really love some of the voices that have come out of the, the SEC. The late Rod Bramblett. I love Andy Burcham, who who has just been terrific carrying on that legacy in that booth. Um, there's there's a lot of tradition in, in SEC broadcasting. And to get back to the question about Eli, um, my gosh, I mean, working with him was surreal. Like I was 19 at the time and it was like learning from Paul McCartney, you know, like you got to listen to him call the hockey game, which is obviously one of the toughest sports to call, especially on radio. And I got to do the intermissions and just to have him throw it back to me or to throw it back to him. That was a surreal moment. Um, so I learned professionalism from Eli. He's a class act. Um, he's done so much for me in terms of just being a friend and supporter in my career and, to be able to work with him for that season that we had together was just insane. I mean, he was kind of getting back to his roots because he used to do the hockey and the Bulls were just resurrected at the time. And to be on WERC, which is the big news station in Birmingham, you know, just going in day after day um, on a weekend, going up to the sixth floor of a studio and just seeing all of downtown Birmingham while you do this hockey game, it's, it's pretty cool. So, and, and Eli still got it. I mean, he's just, continues to roll and I think he'll probably have another look at a national championship this fall if all goes according to plan I find it really interesting and I uh I talked with one of your employers Howard Denneroff to get a little intel on you before I did this and he said that you weren't just someone who was you know naturally gifted you were someone who really studied and was kind of a student of broadcasting and I think you just showed a great example of that in that last uh, that last rant, putting me in my place. Uh, what is it? Uh, how long have you been like that? And how much time do you spend studying other broadcasters? 
<laughs> great, great question. Um, I think since my high school days, I remember when I first started football broadcast, Logan, I kind of had to have the bumpers on. It was like bowling with bumpers and I needed a roadmap. It's like, how do you do this? I've watched so many games and you've already known that you want to do it, but now it comes time to execute and maybe find your own sound. So I remember before the 2015 high school football season, I literally was like kind of copy copying, being a copycat of Clemson, Georgia, 2014, a broadcast I found on YouTube, which was Brad Nessler, Todd Blackledge, and, and Holly Rowe, I believe. And I remember watching that back. And I was like, all right, we're going to caption it like this. You know, we're going to hit the beats like Ness does here. We're going to check the weather right before kickoff. You know, it, it was really copycatting. You know, that's kind of what it came down to at the end. But then eventually you could take the training wheels off and you find your own sound. So it kind of started back then. Um, and, and I've always, I think any, anybody will say it, that when you watch a game, you have one ear that's, you know, just listening and watching the game for the game, but then you have your other ear is listening and watching for the broadcast and seeing what you like and what you don't like. So I've been doing that for a while. I've really tried to find influence in others. I think, what was it the other day? I, I rewatch, I've been in a, in a college football mood here because we're coming around the football season and um rewatching old college games um I had Georgia Notre Dame up earlier today uh Bama Penn State from 2011 uh the other day which was just it's kind of cool to go back in time and just see those things from a sports time capsule perspective but just also the broadcast so always always trying to see the good in what everybody does like I think that's a cool thing if we're kind of supportive as this community of play-by-play guys and broadcasters we're like musicians, right? We're creating something new. We're, it, it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to perform live. And it's a hard thing to kind of keep evolving this for the better. And I think it has taken that track and it, it will continue to do it. So always looking for influence. I love listening to the radio for broadcasts. Um, love watching, you know, some of my favorites and kind of always thinking in terms of how can we kind of like, you know, honor the tradition, right? Because there are some really great folks that paved the way. Um, and I think the best thing that we can do as this current generation that has the opportunity to be on a mic is to serve them well and, and pay tribute while at the same time finding our own way and putting our own twist on it. So one of the other places where you got experience was uh, one of the places where a lot of uh, successful broadcasters tend to make stops the Cape Cod lead. Tell us about that experience. I'm actually going to be heading up uh, to new England um, in the next, uh, in about a month, uh, just for nice. a vacation. And I've just always wondered kind of what that experience was like. Cause I hear that it's, it's challenging, but a ton of fun. Oh, Logan, best two summers ever, man. I can't wait for you to get up there. That's, it was so fun. Like my first Cape League summer was where I fell in love with broadcasting because I got to do it on a daily basis for the first time. That amount of games in one two-month period, I just came off the heels of that just ready to go. And that was right before my first year at IU, and it was amazing. It's the best college baseball talent in the country. There's something romantic about it with the wood bat on these little high school fields and these communities that just – eat, breathe, and sleep baseball, and you're a college kid that's got a chance to describe it. Like, that was just awesome. So I was with the Katua Kettleers, which are – the Cape League's got 10 teams, and the Kettleers are kind of like the Cubs in a sense because they've got no lights. All games are played during the day at Lowell Park, which, in my opinion, is the most beautiful park in the Cape. And then they're also sort of like – the Yankees in a sense that they've won the most out of any franchise. And then they're also kind of like Kentucky basketball where they travel the best out of any franchise on the Cape. They always bring uh, all of our fans always came out to the nearing towns and, and we're kind of just diehards and we had our regulars in attendance. So it was just a privilege to work and get to it. I mean, I, I think any kid who gets to go out to the Cape will tell you that they got, the best experience ever. It really is an awesome summer of baseball. That's for sure. What was the hiring process like? Because you were coming from 
either Indiana or Alabama. Neither one is particularly close to that area. That's a spot where traditionally, not exclusively, but you see a lot of Syracuse and Fordham guys there. Uh, how were you able to break in and get one of those positions? I just got lucky. So I sent in a tape uh, to pretty much every team out there and had some correspondence with a handful of teams, but then eventually Katuit was pretty snappy in their hiring process. They wanted to get it done uh, fairly early. So they were the first one. And my kind of rules of engagement heading out was if you get one, just take it. It doesn't matter. Um, we just want to get in. And they were the first. And luckily we, um, they, they, saw something, I guess, to, to give the chance. So, um, had, had, you know, just your typical interview process. And, um, I got paired up with one of my best friends, Sam brief, who is in Chicago right now. He's the voice of the Chicago dogs in indie ball. And then he's also the voice of Chicago state on the college side of things. And that ended up being the biggest blessing because Sam and I are super close to this day. We just really bonded that summer. So it was Sam and Sam, in the broadcast booth, which was a hit. And so that was a lot of fun. And he, he went to Northwestern and he's as creative as they come uh, in the booth. And so getting to work with Sammy was awesome. And can't thank the Kettleers enough for the chance. Cause that, that was uh, quite, quite the two year experience with them. Out of the gate upon graduation, it looks like you were able to land, you know, a division one gig, at Stony Brook in New York. What was the process of ending up with that position? Yeah, that was tricky because I graduated in 20, right when COVID was happening. So everything was in limbo across the entire industry, top to bottom. Uh, But thankfully, Stony Brook reached out um, sometime that spring, and they had a position open for kind of an entry-level broadcaster, um, doing their streams out there in addition to some video podcast work, right? Kind of a digital reporter. And we had a dialogue going, they didn't have anything set in stone due to COVID, but in the fall, they eventually said, Hey, we're going to be able to swing this. Would you be able to come out in the spring? And it all worked out. Um, It was perfect. So I got to come out here to New York, which is where I'm at right now, uh, January, 2021. Came out to Long Island had never been, and it's been a really fun year and a half at Stony Brook uh, getting to know this department inside out, some of the traditions and history with this school and its athletics. Um, you know, Steve Peichel came through here, built the basketball program. Our baseball program's terrific. Went to the College World Series in 2012, um, which I actually just, we did a documentary on this spring, which was awesome. So that was kind of a new challenge. Being able to call games on a regular basis is kind of what you dream about coming out of school. So couldn't think of a better place to start than here on Long Island with Stony Brook. I want to go back to what you said about making a documentary. How did you, how did that project come about and how did you get involved? What was your role? Yeah, it was crazy. So this past summer, we kind of kicked around the idea about doing a documentary about Stony Brook's 2012 baseball team that went to the college world series and our administration put me on point for it. And it was something completely out of my comfort zone. I've done video editing at a very basic level, you know, video storytelling and some like news features that you would see on your local sports segment. Um, while I was in college making, you know, news packages and sports packages at IU, uh, but nothing to this extent. And we ended up putting it out, a month ago in June, 2022 to commemorate the 10 year anniversary of that Stony Brook team. And it was so much fun, Logan. It was a new challenge. It was a tall mountain to climb, but we pulled it off. I learned a lot about kind of storytelling and and just myself and the endeavor and, and of this team and kind of how to put something together uh, that we wanted to be sort of like a 30 for 30. And it ended up coming out to that level, which couldn't be prouder and happier about um it was a long process took about six months did 18 interviews traveled around um shot all the interviews logged all the interviews got all the footage that we could dig up from 10 years ago that was shot at stony brook and then got all the old games that we could get from that run and 
put it together like a big old puzzle. It was kind of like one of those puzzles that you spread out on the table, like one of those a thousand piece puzzles and you're working on it for a while, but once you finally get it done, feels really good. So couldn't be happier with how it turned out. Um, and just super happy that we got to share that story about Stony Brook. It's called 1300 miles to Omaha. You just YouTube it. You can find it. It's 45 minutes, uh, three parts. I, I suggest kind of like the Netflix binge um, when you could consume it as, as the director. I think that's kind of how the director vision is. And um, it, it was just really rewarding to, to see that story be told from the former players and coaches from that team. We brought on some really cool other people. Doug Glanville from ESPN is a big part in that documentary. Joe Nathan, former Twins closer, uh, played at Stony Brook. He's in the documentary. Travis Jankowski was on that team. He's on the New York Mets right now. Uh, so we had a really cool kind of all-star cast for it. And it's just an awesome story. I'd highly recommend it if you're a baseball fan or not. It's really inspiring. Kind of your classic underdog story. But at the end of the day, that kind of wasn't the message that we were trying to get out because it was a really elite team, uh, that Stony Brook group. Um, and they proved it on their run to Omaha in, in 2012. So one of the things that was mentioned to me again by uh, some people that knew you is that you had a level of kind of polish and description that most people at your age don't have, or it takes longer to develop. And I suspect this goes hand in hand with kind of the way that you study the industry and study other broadcasters. But what is your process when you're going back to listen to your tape or listening to someone else's tape? What are you trying to take notes on? That's a good question. Um, I appreciate that. Whoever said that, that's really nice. Um, I think whenever self-evaluate, I kind of have, there's a creative vision in my head and it's, you get, if we kind of hit it, when you listen back, that's the most satisfying thing. When you listen back to a game and it's like, that's how it sounded in my head before. And the best calls are the honest ones, right? Where they just sort of roll off the tongue. They weren't planned at all. And they just come out. And that's the most exciting when something comes out of you that you never knew was inside in the first place. So the more aha moments like that we can produce, the better off we'll be. So when I listen back, definitely listen back for the fundamentals, time and score. If it's football down and distance. If it's baseball, the count outs, right? Who's on? What inning are we in? Baseball and football are pretty systematic like that, right? You kind of have almost like an answer key in front of you or what you should be saying for the nuts and bolts. And then how you build out on top of that is kind of where you can elevate the call to a new level. Uh, basketball, we're looking for some command. We're looking for some rhythm, right? How are we integrating our partner? How are we working as a team? Are we syncing up? Um, are we giving them space? Are we getting the best out of them? I think those are really crucial. I think that's kind of something – that, that could kind of take us to the next level, you know, just looking at a, at a self-evaluation standpoint. So it's also kind of a feel thing, right? You just kind of come out of a game knowing if, if it was good or not, but it's always fun to listen back when you kind of hit that sweet spot of creative vision, how it sort of sounded in your head and then going out and doing that in the game. All right, on top of that, one of the things that you're also good at is, you know, really kind of painting the picture of the, the stuff that's going on in the periphery. What do the hot dogs smell like? What are they look? What are the cheerleaders wearing? What is the layup line looking like? How do you decide when and what you want to describe in those moments? Simple rule: see it, say it. Right, especially if it's on radio, where we're painting the picture. You kind of have to think about how the director thinks on a telecast, right? Maybe it's third down, the place is starting to come to its feet, and they're cutting away to shots of coaches frantically signaling on the sideline and fans barking out from their seats. Like, I think as a radio broadcaster in that medium, it's your responsibility to grab that and relay it to your listener as well. I, and, and creating a little bit of an environment, a little sense of place, right? So I think we don't want to get too caught up in those details, but I think that's something that's important to rounding out a radio call especially. So I don't I think if you just see it like if it stands out it's pertinent, it's good. I think just sort of knowing what the natural thing to grab is. If it's third down, probably the fans getting on their feet and getting loud. If it's 
um, you know, a celebration right after a team cut down the nets, you know, adding a little element of kind of what's going on. Because remember, if you're watching the telecast, it's the same type of thing. They're cutting to those emotion shots. They're cutting to the reaction shots. So I think that's a good technique to do on radio. And of course, if you were in the television setting, the proper thing to do would probably be layout, right? I think that's kind of the approach on that. If we see it, we say it, right? And that's the same thing in the run of play with the description. If they throw it, they throw it. If they toss it, they toss it. If they, if it's a bullet pass, it's a bullet, right? No two plays are alike. I, I call that snowflake theory. No two home runs are alike. And and I think kind of if we can make them as unique as they really are, then that's a good step to getting the job done right. The next and probably latest kind of big break in your career was, you know, getting hired to do uh, several Westwood One games. And that's actually where I heard of you first because I was watching uh, the game where you did Creighton in Iowa State, as we talked about a little bit off air. Lauren Jensen, who later hit a crazy shot, uh, was someone that I covered in high school. Uh, so was Molly Mogensen, actually. What was the the break that got you connected with Westwood One? Yeah, well, first off, go uh, Lakeville North Panthers, if there are any uh, listeners out there. Um, Lauren Jensen, what a player, right? What a big pickup for Crane. That was a lot of fun covering their run. But getting to work with Westwood last year was a dream come true. It's literally been my dream network. I've always had a soft spot for doing play-by-play on the radio, and I've always thought that Westwood One does it at the highest level. And the fact that we got to do work with them this year was just, I I couldn't even imagine it, Logan. Like it was just a gift from God by the grace of God and um, kind of the stars aligning. And it was a really fun run and I can't wait for more. But as you mentioned earlier, um, when we were talking beforehand, Howard Denneroff, executive producer of Westwood One, I was able to get in touch with him about a year ago this time. I sent him a tape. And just wanted to connect, get his thoughts on the tape, get feedback and introduce myself, get to know him and get some industry advice, right? And we were eventually able to talk with each other. And he listened to the tape and he said, send me a full game. I'm intrigued. I like it. But don't, and you know, don't get your hopes up, but I consider hiring you. And when he said that, I took it as oh yeah, you're doing the right thing. Like, you know, keep going like at five years down the road, like you're on right, you're on the right track. Like I did not think it was in the immediate type of sense. And so sent him a full football game that I did um, at IU as a student. And he eventually got back to me, told me that he listened to it, loved it. And that's how we got on board for college football on Westwood this past fall. Um, which was just a blessing. Um, you know, can't thank him enough for the opportunity. And that's like just unbelievable. Like I, I, I've been admiring Westwood for a long time and it was super emotional that first game getting to do it. It, it was emotions unlike anything, getting that type of break and definitely was maybe a little nervous for the first series, the first drive. It, it was uh, Michigan, Wisconsin at Camp Randall. But um, after that, we let it rip and had a great time. So Westwood's just been unbelievable. I I just really have a ton of respect for all the other broadcasters who have been a part of that long tradition, you know, going back to, you know, Jack Buck and Kevin Harlan right now and Kevin Kugler. I mean, these are some of your idols um, that just have this incredible skill set as broadcasters as a whole, not just on radio, but on television. And I think we all know the rush of a radio call. And so to, to get there was just a dream come true. That's for sure. I guess what would you say, because, I mean, I obviously do not look at the industry that way, but some people do. Do you get any, you know, side-eye looks from other people who are like, why is this kid getting an opportunity that I'm not when I've been grinding at Big State U for 30 years? Um, What would you say to someone who said that? I I would – I mean – that's never really happened, but I, I mean, it just, everything happens for a reason. I, I really think that we're, I don't know, we're kind of all in the place of where we're meant to be. I firmly believe it. And I think if you just look at the positives of, I, I just couldn't be more blessed to have the chance to do it. And the home there's like, if we, if we all look at what we have and kind of treat it 
the same approach uh, of, you know, the high school football game in, in Fishers, Indiana is the same as Michigan and Ohio State with for a right to go to the Big Ten title game, right? If, if we kind of approach it like that, it'll end up being fun no matter what. Um, and sure, obviously, there are different, you know, levels to it, but it all it's it's all kind of an interesting ride. You hear about different career paths and, you know, how people get breaks. And I think that's an interesting to think, thing to think about is, is sort of there's no one set path, right? We hear it all the time. And I think that's kind of the beauty of what we do in terms of, you know, the work that it takes and the sacrifice that it takes. And, um, you know, there's a lot to be said for somebody like Don Fisher, who's been at Indiana is going to be his 50th year, right? I mean, that's, that's incredible. That's the same. I think that's just as rewarding as Joe Buck, right? Who's, you know, had the big, has had the chair, a front row seat to the biggest games and, of, of this past generation, you know, the last 20 years, right? Whether it's, you know, 28-3, Falcons, Patriots, or the Cubs winning the World Series finally. I mean, the guy's been there. And I truly believe that each of us, when we kind of get involved in this, we're kind of like, if we find this the same type of special that you can find in the Cubs and wherever we're at and kind of treat it with the same love for the love of doing it, then we'll be okay. And I think that attitude lends itself to a better call in the end, which is kind of what we should all strive for. One of the questions that I've kind of recently added to the the portfolio that I ask just about everybody, and I think it's a good segue from that, talking about, you know, the love of the craft and how much fun you have doing this. What specifically about doing a game makes you happy and brings you joy? Like what are the what are the aspects of it that are like you know what there's nothing better. Oh man. So many, right? The crowd, right? Kind of, I like calling it riding the wave of the crowd, right? I think you could do that on TV a lot. Um but the same thing in radio, right? You kind of rev up the end. That's kind of what I like to do. I like to rev up the engine a little bit when the crowd gets into it. I think you got to meet them at that point. At television you can kind of ride the wave. I think Vern Lundquist really rode the wave of the crowd well, right? Um, if you go back and watch any SEC on CBS highlights with Uncle Vern, there's a good ch- chance that he's, uh, you know, uh, riding the crowd pretty good after, uh, you know, just hitting that snappy call and then getting out of the way, right? I also kind of fill up on what I mentioned earlier is the creative vision when something kind of comes out of you that, you didn't realize was there in the first place. I think that's really rewarding. I think those little light bulb moments where it's like, wow, I didn't realize we could take it to that place. Like, that's really cool. Just have, just seeing like, we love sports, right? We want to be there for it. So I think just the fact that you've got a game in front of you and whether it's, you know, Stony Brook Binghamton soccer or, uh, you know, South Carolina Creighton in the elite eight, right. For a spot in the final four, like that's that's a game you're responsible for it so you better go out there and deliver um right because the audience it depends on that you you owe it to the audience you owe it to the players the coaches the game itself and so i think there's kind of a rush and a reward in having that responsibility and hopefully going out there and not screwing it up right what is your dream job super bowl on westwood one march madness on cbs March Madness on Westwood One. But Westwood One's a dream. I, I, I'm honest on that. Um, I'd love, I'd love to pair that with network television long term. Um, I've always said I wanted to call the Super Bowl, and I'd love to do it on Westwood. I'd love to do it on CBS. I've kind of always admired CBS's television presentation. With all due respect to, I mean, ESPN and Fox are great too. NBC just want the Blazer, amazing. right? Right, right. Yeah, there is something about that Blazer. Yeah, for sure. So that's the dream. I think if you would have asked me, I mean, that's, that's always been the dream. I think I had a, I had an interest in kind of that hometown genre being a hometown voice um, a couple of years ago, especially fresh out of college, um, you know, kind of being that, that Larry Munson or that John Ward. And I, th- I definitely think that would be something to enjoy too. But I think I've always, always been deep down in me to do games at the network level. And so the dream would be to do the Super Bowl. That that's always been the dream. I think it's the biggest event that we've got here in America and we'll get there someday in some way, shape or form. And I can't wait for that day. 
what is your favorite from your career broadcast horror story? And uh, if you're not familiar <laughs> with that question, it's not necessarily actually terrible, but just uh, one of those days where everything went wrong or you had just a ridiculous uh, vantage point or something just really weird that happened during a broadcast. Okay. I don't know if it's one story too but it's, it's a podcast it, we got all kinds it, of times it's, it's kind of like a couple of games together so i used to do high school play-by-play down in selma alabama right when i was a student at the university of alabama and i had the high school game of the week on wjam or jam fm and we would go down to this little school called keith high school in orville alabama it's a super small town outside of selma population couple hundred and when you drive in there's a sign that says orville welcome to orville where the living is easy and it's just this slow quiet little southern town and keith high the bears they're blue and gold kind of think like the la rams color scheme with the same helmet um of michigan right the michigan three-pronged the the winged michigan helmet with the la rams color scheme and the broadcast setup, Logan, at Keith High is one of the worst. It is at the end of the south end zone at uh, JV Caldwell Stadium is what it was called. And you're basically at the, the pylon to the 10-yard line of this tower. And anything at the opposite end of the field is just completely impossible. And I remember going to Keith, and I love Keith because Keith, had the best tailgate food for its homecoming and they would welcome you in like no other. They took great care of you. But when it came to getting up in that booth, you were on your own. And we had a little, there was not a single desk. There was one power outlet and we would have to prop up. I would take the rig that had all of our gear. Um, We had a JK audio mix at the time that we weren't using a Comrex for those games. We had a JK sport mix and we would put it up on the big, the, my little gearbox would be the desk per se, right? Where I would put the audio mix and then I would put the my boards and I would kind of cram it all on there. And I'd look out the window and you'd just be standing, which was fine. And there was a bunch of old equipment um, in this sort of abandoned makeshift treehouse press box <laughs> at Keith. So I'd say that was like the most horrible thing. I'm trying to think of... When you're out in the Cape League, and you're going to have to ask a future Cape League broadcast alum, Logan, if you have them on the show, when you go to Wareham, which is the one team that's not actually on the Cape, it's in the mainland of Massachusetts, an ugly baseball diamond. It's a gray stardust infield. It's not even real infield dirt. It's like gray. It looks like you're on the moon. And the visiting broadcast spot is above the third base dugout in what we like to call the raptor cage. It looks like a cage that you like the actors in Jurassic park are hiding from the raptors in and the, you know, the raptor can climb over the top if it's smart enough, right. That iconic scene in Jurassic park. So that was kind of fun where, you know, the guys can all hear you right in the dugout when you're calling the game and you're, you know, maybe 20 feet away from the pitcher who's on the mound. Right. And here you are on the call. So Wareham was definitely kind of a nightmare every time you went. And Keith High School down in Orville was one of the trickiest vantage points to call a football game. Those are probably the two. I wouldn't call them horror stories. That probably doesn't classify, but those are two of the wackiest places to call a game for sure. You haven't really been in broadcasting until you've done it from either the back of a pickup truck or a, <laughs> uh, or a scissor lift. A couple just kind of random notes that I saw on your website. It says, you are a Cracker Barrel aficionado. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Love Cracker Barrel. I visited, I want to say, almost 40 different stores at this point. I think there are almost 400 in the U.S., and it's kind of a goal to get to all of them. I love it. It's one of my favorite um, places to visit on a, any road trip. If I'm driving anywhere, and as a Midwesterner, if it's within eight hours, we're driving, baby, right? So, um love going to Cracker Barrel and um I'm I'm trying to get to that 300 mark but I'm at 40 right now I think the last stop was in Greensboro actually um in March when I was covering the the women's NCAA tournament so that was convenient the hotel was right next door which is great 
Well, there's one just down the street in Lakeville, Minnesota. So <laughs> there you go. Um, there you go. So all the places you can go out after a game, and every time you're going to the Cracker Barrel. Yeah, that might be to the dismay of whoever's on the crew, right? But I would <laughs> love that. I mean, now don't get me wrong. I like a good local establishment, but. It's pretty hard to beat uh, the biscuits at Cracker Barrel and uh, a little old-timers breakfast. That's typically what I'm dialing up. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to on just an off day, both on a national level and maybe someone under the radar that um, the average listener to this podcast may not know about? Okay, under the radar, I think John Sadak did a heck of a job at the NCAA tournament on Westwood one. I was just entranced when I was listening to him call his first round pod with Fran Fraschilla. I thought it was innovative. He took it to a new place, energy. I was hanging on every word. I mean, it was a really good call, a lot of power, great description. You're always going to get that with Sadak. And he's a guy who I think is a little underrated. I'm glad that he's with the Reds who were my team growing up. I used to be a Cincinnati Reds fan. Um, I shouldn't say used to be, but, you know, kind of outgrow your fandom as you go, I guess. And now he's on the Reds television booth, which is awesome. Um, so I've always admired John's work from afar. Um, favorites kind of that are known, I think. Love some Kevin Kugler. Um, love Ian Eagle is unbelievable. Um, and Ian just keeps getting better and better with every call. I mean, he rocked it with the St. Peter's games that he had during March Madness this year. Um, you'd be hard pressed. I mean, he's got literally the perfect ingredients. Like I think play-by-play guys are kind of like quarterbacks or pitchers. Like there's a certain makeup that you need and he's got all of it. He's got the command. He nails the big moments. He's got his wit, which is his trademark. And he's a pro class act. I mean, brings the best out of his analyst. Um, so I am definitely one of my favorites from a, a more known sense and, Hometown wise, like if we're looking for a team radio guy, maybe uh, to to listen to on an off day, I I do like Grimmer. I love Mike as I Mike Grimm as I mentioned earlier at Minnesota. Eli Gold, Alabama's great. I, being in New York, it's been a nice privilege to be able to listen just when you actually get on the car and on your AM dial to the Mets and the Yankees from a baseball sense. And the Mets booth is is outstanding. Howie Rose is really good. Um, have really enjoyed that. And then John Sterling and Susan Waldman on the Yankee side of thing has also been kind of cool to listen to the people that you hear about, you know, if you're watching MLB network and, you know, they'll play the cut of the highlight, but like hearing them in an actual game setting is kind of cool. So I could go on and on. There are a lot of, a lot of um, one other one, Bob Sochi, new England Patriots love Bob Sochi. I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a better technical broadcaster who does it in a unique way. I think he's done a really good job in that booth over the last few years. How did you develop your preparation process and spotting boards? Good question. I, I've i tried to get more efficient with it as I've gotten older. I think it's pretty, at least when I was younger, I was kind of into how can I make my boards the cutest, right? How can I get the best color coding and uh, you know, jam pack as much on there. That way, when you kind of show it to people, they're like, Ooh, look at that. That's really cool. Right. But the bottom line is it's just like studying for a test. So you like, just get it done. As long as you know what you need to know going in, you'll be in good shape. And that's what matters is because it doesn't matter how pretty your board is. It matters how cool or, you know, how good your call is, how solid it is. So I've definitely gotten more efficient with it. Um, you know, getting relevant information, getting pertinent information, um, reading a ton, reading, getting ready for these um, games where if it's a national game and naturally there'll be a little more coverage on the web, if maybe opposed to doing, say, a Stony Brook game, right? Reading a ton of beat writers, watching a ton of games back. That I found has covered the most ground in prep. And I think the biggest key on putting the boards together has been everybody's got their own process So I've kind of found sort of mine of identifying players. I think knowing who, you know, number 15 is and being able to know kind of their background on call is very important. And that way it can roll. You you can't have a good call if you don't know who the, you know, the ID is right away Um, and it'll roll off the tongue from there. So that's sort of been the main process is 
do we know who everybody is and then build out from there? And can we do it in an efficient way? Um, especially when there are multiple games in a week, especially when it's, you know, uh, maybe like a football game where you've got, you know, a lot of people to account for. You seem to have a very good memory. Like we talked about, Hey, <laughs> I went back and I listened to X game with Brad Nessler and this yeah. analyst. And I don't even remember who they were and you knew who they were from years ago. Is that just a natural gift that you have, or do you do anything to develop that? Logan, I'm just a nerd, man. I'm just a nerd when it comes to this type of stuff. I guess I think it's like when we're telling story, like we're telling story, right? A podcast, you're just telling stories, right? And um, I don't know. You just remember that type of stuff. I I love. There are certain little calls that sort of stick out to me, um, and, and kind of remembering you know, who had the call and, you know, what, I, I think remembering the game, like that's just some of the best. Like I remember Baker Mayfield and Oklahoma going to Tennessee in 2015. That was another game I watched back during that first high school year to kind of take the cues from. And that was a dynamite game. It was double overtime. Oklahoma was down by 14 in the fourth quarter. They had no business being in the game, but Mayfield let them on a comeback, got it to overtime. They wanted it overtime. I don't know. Like that's just sports. I think like us as sports fans, I think you'll find a lot of people can do that. And that's the beauty of sports. And that's kind of why I think we get into this stuff in the first place, right? You have to have sort of a baseline love for sports and these kind of memories that only sports can produce. Well, once again, we are visiting with Sam Niederman here on this episode of the say the damn score podcast. He is the voice of Stony Brook in New York. Also, uh, recently began doing some stuff for Westwood One. And Sam, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Logan. Really can't thank you enough for having me on. Appreciate it and can't wait to catch up again soon. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of com. Also, please follow me on Twitter at radio underscore Logan or on Instagram at say the damn score. You can find me on Facebook, just Logan Anderson. <laughs> There's a couple others you may have to sift through, but I will certainly take your ad if you want to go that way as well. Remember Apple podcast reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps make the show better. Last but not least, please reach out to guests of the show. Uh, we tag them on our Twitter messages so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.